Hello and welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. I am half of your co-hosts, Gabriel Krauser, and I'm joined by the uh, more sober and judicious half, Nicholas Lorimer. Yes, well, big if true, I must say that I've been struggling with uh, a lot of sound problems because I've been moving around a bit from house to house at the moment, so I apologize if there are any issues. I've currently covered half of my room in bits of uh, pillowcases and, and uh, pillows and couch cushions, so hopefully my sound will write. <laughs> um, yeah, but, we were battling with a high fault thunderstorm. Yes, likely. and there was a massive thunderstorm which hailed all over the garden, mm. and it made it completely impossible to record. Uh, it's also one of the reasons why we're late. The other reason we're late in this uh, recording is because it was Gabriel's birthday of the weekend. He was turning the ripe old age of thirty-one. Indeed, yeah, I'd been out in the week for I'd been out on the road for two weeks, and uh, got back just in time to have a family dinner. And uh, so I'm afraid I gave that priority over the over the two crickets, which is uh, I don't know, maybe not. I think I, I think it's understandable. It's understandable. Everyone deserves a special day on their birthday. <laughs> I know. I had a very I took good time. A day off when I had a birthday. And then we had a nice follow up with uh, some volleyball in the park, which is just about my favorite thing to do. Uh, mm. I think the youngest was seven years old or four years old. We had a four-year-old playing some volley. We had a 65-year-old <laughs> playing some volley. Uh, all ages and sizes, boys and girls, men and women. And a lot of fun. A lot of fun to enjoy the sunshine. And uh, and Emerentia Park, which is where we were, I, I just feel like it's one of the last corners of civilization. As we went in, I had uh, the volleyball net uh, wrapped inside of a big bag. And the security said, you can't, you can't bring a gazebo in. Is that a gazebo? And I said, no, no, it's a volleyball. It's a volleyball. He said, it's a volleyball tent. I said, yeah, yeah, it's a volleyball tent. He said, no, you can't do that. Then I unzipped it. And he's like, no, man, it's a net, not a tent. You can go through. Then I asked him why. He said, no, we, you can't let gazebos in because we're worried about squatters. So that was particularly <laughs> ironic because I'd just come back from a state-owned farm, government-owned farmed that has become one of the world's most luxurious squatter camps. I think entry level two and a half million. So, uh, so yeah, ongoing motif is that this country is not really a country uh, because <laughs> you can kind of do what you want in most places, uh, excepting Emerentia Park, where Apparently, you can only yes. play you can only play volleyball or or look at the at the roses, and uh, those are both good things to do. So I'm feeling good about that. But we've got a pretty busy show that we want to bring to you today. Um, it's, uh, it's going to be an American centric one. And I think some people might be frustrated at the extent to which the U S has commanded, uh, global attention, uh, particularly with, uh, president, uh, contracting, uh, coronavirus and with the upcoming national election. But it's important to remember we try and get around the world and we probably do come back to the US more often than than some other major countries. But uh, in part, that's because uh, if uh, the US sneezes, the rest of the world gets a cold. Um, well, as we've experienced this year, I mean, I wonder how many countries the US actually exported COVID to. I'm sure Europe did a lot of the work. And of course, China is the origin point. But the US is so interconnected. Uh, yeah, feels like that and may have been a contributor. Yeah, and when it comes to to the economy, uh, it still is the world's largest economy. 
Uh, in real terms, uh, military spending there is still dwarfs the next 20 countries combined. So it really is very important to think about. And I want to start with an issue which is quite technical and very sensitive. And uh, it's the kind of thing that uh, I suppose should be prefaced by a very depressing bit of empirical philosophical analysis. Uh, in the 90s, there was a, a study conducted to, I suppose the authors were actually trying to show that talking about philosophy is really good for people or talking about deep values, deep issues. And so they went out and they uh, did a bunch of controlled experiments where they sort of polled people's opinions at the start of a mediated dialogue and then at the end of it. And to their dismay, they found that uh, often talking about very deep issues produces worse polarization. And one of the issues mm. uh, that was studied was abortion. So people can go go into a conversation feeling a bit uh, kind of sympathetic to both the pro-life and the pro-abortion view, uh, but talk about it for long enough and uh, the pitchforks come out and, and, and people just want to burn each other's houses down. And uh, I think that has defined a lot of people's attitude to to this issue for a long time but uh, things have changed the Supreme Court of the United States has yeah. uh, gotten a couple of conservative justices there's uh, the new one and what's her name again uh, uh, Amy Coney Coney Barrett Coney Barrett uh, yeah I forget her middle name but it's Amy Barrett uh, she is a traditional Catholic professor also, I apologize because you can probably hear the rain in the background, which is uh, which is a bit annoying. But anyway, hopefully it might cause a problem. Um, so she's a very traditional Catholic woman. She's uh, got a family of seven, I think, uh, with two adopted kids and one kid with, uh, I think, Down syndrome, who's the youngest one. Um, and she's yeah. got uh, <laughs> so she's got five biological children, two Haitian kids who she adopted. Uh, she's been a federal judge for three years, and before then, I think she was a law professor or something at uh, Notre Dame University in the U.S. Um, and she is so I don't really like this these these terms conservative justice and progressive justice because I think it cheapens a little bit the fact that they do often actually have a um, they do actually have a real philosophy. Uh, there's the more sort of uh, interpreting the intent of the law type of thing which is i think what a lot of left-wing justices tend to do and living constitution the, yeah living yeah. constitution uh which i think is a terrible doctrine but it is still a philosophy of sorts and then there's the more the conservative ones are usually originalists although uh kavanaugh is not interestingly but coney barrett and gorsuch and thomas clarence are um and that is a we basically say here's what the law meant at the time and here's what we can reasonably assume and then let's look at what other cases said in the past and based on that original meaning we will interpret the law um i, I tend to prefer it because it's there's less room for higgledy-piggledy <laughs> as there can be with the living constitution when you can find certain very strange rulings and things well which is actually i think what one of the things that we're going to talk about today is exactly that which is roe v wade yeah so so to give a context of how Roe v. Wade came about, uh, 1967 ruling, the Supreme America was going through the civil rights movement. It was coming to terms with the fact that after the abolition of slavery and the Civil War, 
the very bloody civil war uh, that it took to to bring that about there had been serious time of reformation and of spreading democracy and spreading equal rights and then there'd been a retreat from that and uh in that period uh america had legally become a much more racist country and uh there were serious efforts from both sides of the aisle both republicans and democrats to to return to a place of equality before the law and in some cases to push for affirmative action so one of the key rulings uh that that you need to consider is 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 called griswold this is supreme court of the united states ruling in i think 1964 and the case was this connecticut which is now one of the richest states in america close to new york it's a nice place to have a kind of suburban home that's close enough that you can get on the train every day to go be an investment banker in the city connecticut had this rule this law the state law which said married people aren't allowed to buy contraception so the argument was you know the point of getting married is to have babies the point of having sex is to have babies within marriage and so there there can be no reasonable argument for a married couple to go and get contraceptives and this was taken to the supreme court and the supreme court said we're striking down this law it's unconstitutional and the reason we're striking this down is because marriage is a is a very private affair and we we can't imagine a way of enforcing this law without breaking that privacy so you know what does the state envisage that uh if someone does buy the contraception or gets contraception from out of state and brings it back you know do you envisage police going into the marital bed to see evidence of whether the contraception was used or not in order to prosecute that just seems like a gross violation of privacy and we see this privacy so where's the right to privacy uh in the constitution well they find it in the 14th amendment which uh, protects all people from uh, being deprived of life liberty and property without due process of the law and so this so they doesn't mention the word privacy uh but uh, they used the the court invented this phrase of penumbral rights so penumbra is a kind of shadow uh, an umbra is a full shadow and then a penumbra is a half shadow umbra shadow we also get the word umbrella from that anyway so they said there the shadowy rights which aren't exactly spelled out but we can tell that they're there and there's the shadowy right to privacy and that's necessarily going to be violated by Connecticut's law and therefore we're going to strike down the law now i'm not sure that's a great argument for why to why you should strike down that law i mean it does seem everyone agreed that the law is very is is it's it's not a good law uh but the the question was whether this was the right way of going about striking it down one of the yeah, things that, that the role of a court is to make sure that laws comply with the constitution or with other laws they are not necessarily to make sure that legislation is good or sensible uh people want to pass really stupid laws I and mean, that's usually the prerogative yeah so that is so i mean that is the counter argument and there's and there's a very deep tension there because you know if people want to pass a law like uh it's okay to enslave people you kind of do want the constitution to hold that back um right 
but uh, that, that's the exception I'm making, right? I'm saying that uh, the, the courts are just meant to hold according to these, in, in my view at least, uh, according to the constitutional values. Um, but they should be very careful about overstepping their bounds. Absolutely, I agree. And I just uh, want to add. We talked a about this on a previous episode of what was it called? Judges who judge too much, I think. Yeah. And Lord Sumption is, uh, yeah, I keep referring to his BBC Beat uh, Wreath Lectures. I think it's the last great thing that the BBC does on a perfectly consistent basis. And, uh, yeah, he did the 29, 2019 lectures. It's four one hour lectures, and I, I can't recommend it strongly enough. He was a Supreme Court justice in the UK, and uh, he talks about judicial overreach, and I think in a very sober and judicious way, very insightful, using real case studies in the UK and uh, his experience as a judge. Uh, and he's a very wise man. He's also very witty but without being gratuitous it's it's good listening anyway either listen to our earlier episodes or to him so i just want to give a further bit of context uh sort of reading the court's mind a, a major issue in the civil rights movement was miscegenation laws these are laws that banned sex acts or marriage across races in several states in about 20 states at the start of 1960 and still in 14 states by you get by the time you get to 67. So after the Griswold case in Connecticut, you get uh, the Loving case, which is where the Supreme Court strikes down, says laws that ban people from marrying across races are unacceptable. Uh, they're unconstitutional. And there again, they use the argument of marriage as a super private thing. It's too private and too fundamental for due process to be able to restrict people from marrying across these racial lines. So there's, and if you read the court judgments, there's like a lot of flowery and very romantic language about the sanctity of marriage, the sacredness of marriage. And there's something kind of uh, weird about a secular court using this religious language. And there's also something kind of correct about it. I mean, I do think that uh, the UK, for example, has a strong common law tradition where they say there's, you know, there's some laws that haven't been written down, but we kind of think they're there because they've been there since yeah, as soon a, as people there's had. A, there's a precedent of people acting like they exist because they're, they're basically a formalization of custom. In a way. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so, so the court is big into privacy and it is using privacy to, to noble ends. Even if it were, even if the, means weren't properly justified i think we can all agree it's a good idea to let married people use contraception and it's a good idea to strike down laws that bar people from marrying across racial lines so they gained a lot of credibility for the means that they were using for this penumbral right of privacy because people agreed that the ends are really just and then you get to roe versus wade and in roe versus wade the court argues and i'm going to quote them quickly here uh, if I can just pull this up, uh, they say that it really doesn't matter whether or not there is a person, whether whether a fetus is a person. Um, the exact quote, and, and this is obviously because Texas, the particular state in question, which which banned abortion uh, unless you'd been uh, unless the woman had been raped or something like that, um, or, or her life was in danger. Or they argue is usually the other uh, or incest. Yeah, yeah. They, they said, outside of those circumstances, we think you've got to ban abortion because you need to protect life, and and that is a that is enshrined in the Constitution in uh, the Fourteenth Amendment too. 
uh, explicitly. That's what the 14th Amendment says. You can't have your life deprived without due process. And the fetus, if it is a human person life, uh, doesn't have access to due process uh, in, in an abortion case. And, and so the court said, we need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins. When those trained in respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy, and theology are unable to arrive at any consensus, the judiciary, in this point in the development of man's knowledge, is not in a position to speculate as to the answer. And this is what Nicholas and I talked about in a podcast about abortion about a year ago. Basically, reasonable people are going to disagree about when personhood starts. Secularists and religious people both have this problem. Religious people believe in a soul. It, what are the characteristics of a soul? It is an immaterial thing. It's a supernatural thing. You can't smell it. You can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't hold it. You can't weigh it. It is precisely beyond empirical measurement. So it's hard for a religious person to know by empirical investigation whether the soul comes into play at the point of conception, of uh, you know, that is, that's a standard place to go to, but there's problems with that view, namely twinning and, and tripleting, because from the moment of conception, you don't necessarily have one person. That uh, zygote can, you know, go from being one cell to two cells to four cells to eight cells and then 16 cells, and only then can it split the 16 becoming two sets of eight which are sort of removed from the uterine wall and then retreat back into it. And now you've got two persons. And if there's one thing to be said about a soul is one soul cannot become two souls. It's a unique and distinct thing. So if you really have two persons, it must be that the person only came into being at the splitting point, which is after conception. So that's a, that's a challenge for, for religious people. And I'm not saying it's an insurmountable one, but it's something to think about. And it's the same for secularists. Some secularists want to argue that... Uh, uh, that you you get a legal person, that thing which is due the process of the law, which is due the equal protection of the law at the moment of conception, or they might want to say later after twinning is no longer feasible, or they might want to say later when hedonic states, pleasure and pain can be uh, entertained, enjoyed, or they want to say later when it's a viable self-sustaining being. Yeah, Some religious uh, people say that's women and what the laws of banning abortion in America are what they call heartbeat laws, which is when you can detect a fetus's heartbeat, then you can no longer abort the fetus. Another another rule you might go by is you might say it's only a person or a, or the soul only enters. And uh, by the way, if you read the Old Testament, uh, God breathes life into Adam. Uh, the, the word there is luth, L-U-Z. Very old word, and uh, and in in ancient Hebrew texts, this is generally the word that then gets translated into the Greek for soul, luth. But luth, it's not clear that it means soul. It 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 it, uh, it conventionally just means breath. So another argument that that very sincere religious people have used, that very sincere secularists have used is that life only begins either through the soul or through the legal concept of personhood when it when the, when the child takes its first breath after delivery either through the usual means or cesarean section so that would be an argument for it's not a person until 9 months um, or until it's taken out there's the heartbeat there's various conceptual anyway i'm not trying to resolve which is right or which is wrong of course there are also people who say 
that uh, drawing on the story of Lot, uh, that uh, that there's actually personhood and souls involved in in raw semen and raw eggs, and and this is why masturbation or contraception like condoms is itself an immoral act because you 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 sort of uh, you, you're wasting life uh, of the relevant kind. Now, I'm, okay, so I'm I, I'm. I'm not going to defend that view. I do think that view is, is properly wrong. But all of the other views I kind of do have some time for. And I've got time to debate that view too. But I think reasonable people are going to draw different lines. And this is not a religious problem or a secular problem. This is a problem for both religious people and secular people to try and figure out where do you draw the line. And I think that the Supreme Court was right to say that those trained, I'm quoting directly, those trained in respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy, and theology are unable to arrive at any consensus. That is true. And I don't think that's going to change. I don't think that's going to change in 10 years. I don't think that's going to change in a thousand years. I think people are going to go on yeah, that, disagreeing. That's probably gonna, about, this is probably going to be a hot button issue for the rest of human existence at all, you know. If there's a time when human beings master the universe, perhaps then, but before then, no. Yeah. So until then, what are we to do? Well, the Supreme Court of the United States, their modus vivendi, which, by the way, informs the South African Constitutional Court's way of interpreting this issue. So this is also relevant to us and informed many uh, other countries who, who, who followed in the wake of Roe versus Wade. Their way of thinking about it is they say, because we can't be sure... Let's see if we can find a way of adjudicating this matter in which that question of whether it's a person or not, whether it has a soul or not, is irrelevant. And we have found such a way. The penumbral right we discovered in the shadows of the 14th Amendment, the right to privacy. And from that, Justice Black, Blackman found the right to an abortion. Because he said a woman, it's her body, it's her private issue, uh, and she has total freedom to choose what she wants to do. Now, he said that's true in the first trimester. In the second trimester, um, having an abortion at the time became slightly more dangerous than just waiting it out and giving birth. And he said at that point, the state then has an interest. Uh, so there can be some regulations about that. And then he said he drew the line. The Supreme Court drew the line, actually, although they said we're pretending not to draw the line. They said at the third trimester, which begins at around seven months, the fetus becomes viable, which is to say you could extract the fetus from the mother, incubate it in a chamber, and uh, and, and stand a very reasonable chance that this is going to grow up to be a person. And at that point, he says, there can be no abortions because, well, he doesn't really spell out how he, he, he manages this contradiction. Uh, and this is part of the reason that the that the ruling is so frustrating, because he wants to have his cake and eat it too. He wants to say it's the woman's choice whether or not it's a it's a person or a soul from day one. But also, it's not the woman's choice in the third trimester because then it's a viable fetus, it's a viable person, and uh, and you can't just go killing that. So it's a very this is why. Like, I think reasonable people that are pro-abortion and reasonable people that are pro-life should both be very disgruntled and very dissatisfied with Roe versus Wade. And experts have been. 
conservative justices, and I agree with you, we, sh we should be very sensitive with this term because it is a way of cheapening the process, but to use this uh, conventional way of boxing people in, people from the left, justices from the left, justice from the right, have both uh, expressed very scathing rebuttals of the Roe versus Wade judgment for, for, for decades, in, but it's just sort of... Uh, the one who's just passed away, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Exactly. Um, and, and, and it's just kind of flown over most person's heads. It flew over, it flew over my head. I was high school debating. Of course we debated abortion. That is the kind of thing we might talk about, but it just was such a sensitive issue that I, we never got informed about it. I never felt out like I was particularly well informed. I'd hear a talking point or two and then just see this irreconcilable difference and run away. Um, and anyway, now this issue is coming back to the forefront. So we, so we're just trying to talk through it. Now, here is a very simple proposal, I think, for how this irreconcilable difference could be mitigated in a way that would be good for mothers, would be good for societies, and would be good, I think, for the unborn. I think that privacy is a very important thing to respect when it comes to the body, but not when it comes to the mind. And this is why, this is partly informed by my uh, political philosophy, which is Republican liberalism. So the Republican liberal very much defines being a person and especially uh, the, being a... Small, small r Republicanism, not Yes, small r, r from, from 400 years ago, way before American politics. In fact, from, from Seneca, from, from Roman days, res publica means a thing of the public. And, and, the, and one of the grounding ideas is that we are public beings and that we function well when we exchange in reason. And so my simple proposal is that women who want to have an abortion should be obliged to give their reasons. Now, if a woman says, I want an abortion because I was raped, then I think that is a good reason and that abortion should be permitted. And if a woman says, I want an abortion because I took precautions, I, I was on birth control or we used a condom, but it didn't work. We took reasonable precautions to not get pregnant, but it didn't work. Uh, and now, similar to the rape, you know, one by malicious, malicious act, one by accident, there's, there's this undue burden on me that I took reasonable precautions to avoid. I want an abortion. I think that's reasonable. I think it's tough, but it's reasonable. Or a woman can stipulate I believe that this fetus, which is, you know, in its first semester, or first trimester or second trimester, whatever the case may be, I believe that this fetus is not a person. That is my religious belief. I believe that it only becomes a person when it gets a heartbeat, or I believe it only becomes a person when it takes its first breath, or I believe it only becomes a person when it can cogitate a hedonic response or whatever the story is. What does hedonic actually mean? I'm sorry, I'm not sure. It, it's, it's an ancient Greek word. We, we get the word hedonism from it. So ah, hedonis, a hedonism so is someone... pleasure and pain. Yes, yes, gotcha. yes. Um, so, so, you know, if a woman believes that it's not a person and philosophers and theologians and doctors of the highest caliber cannot reach a consensus about whether that's right or wrong. Some are very strongly in favor of that view. Some are very strongly against that view. Then I, then I think that is a very important consideration. 
and I and I think that it seems appealing to me to give her jurisdiction over that, uh, over resolving that dispute in her way. Now, the flip side is that if a woman does not believe, if a woman believes it is a person, but she wasn't raped, she didn't take any precautions, she was just having willful, casual sex, and she got pregnant, and now she's five months pregnant, and uh, she's decided it's kind of inconvenient to her, she thinks it's a person, she thinks it has a soul, uh, she's, a, you know, a Catholic, a good Catholic. She thinks it's got a soul, but or a good Muslim, whatever. She thinks it's got a soul, but she just thinks it's inconvenient to her, so she wants to terminate. I think that shouldn't be allowed, because then she's saying, I want to kill something, I want to kill someone, just because this is inconvenient to me. Now, the pushback against this is if you're asking for the reasons, people can just lie. So someone might think that the baby has a soul, the fetus has a soul, uh, uh, you know, wasn't raped, not incest, uh, didn't use a, uh, birth control. But in order to get the, the abortion, uh, we'll just lie in this document, in the sworn affidavit, in order to get the procedure that she wants. And I think some people probably would lie. But I think that it would still be an improvement and it's it's worth noting, like, yeah, so for generally you are going to have to just go by their conscience and trust that what they're saying is true. Of course, if someone egregiously is lying, for example, if they write on Twitter, I'm about to get an abortion, these, there's this new law which says I have to give my reasons, whether I think it's a person or not, or whether I think it has a soul or not, uh, but I don't feel like doing that, so I'm just going to lie. I do think it's uh, a person, but uh, that doesn't bother me. I want to terminate it anyway. Someone tweets that and then goes and lies on the thing and th says, I think it's not a, a person, I want the abortion. Then I think the authority should be able to intervene and say, no, 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 this is not allowed. And in fact, uh, you know, you need to be tried for some very serious perjury and, and maybe something even more serious than that. But generally, people will be better at lying than that. And, and here's one reason sort of by analog that, I, that I'm not so worried about that. I mean, I'm worried, but I'm not so worried. And that is conscription. We have been living in an era of peace, Nicholas and I. We have not lived through a war in our country. And uh, there's been no existential war in any of the developed countries in the world. Well, so, we, may have, we may have lived through a sort of limited background war, which was the violence of the 90s, but not a declared war, no. Yeah. So certainly not a just war in which conscription is just. So my view is that in a just war, if you're if you're facing an existential threat, uh, or or you're killing Nazis, uh, then I think conscription is 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 uh, is correct. It's absolutely correct and proper. And some people are not going to going to want to join the army. Some pacifists are not going to want to join the army. Now, it is a very old practice. It is an ancient practice, and it was a common 20th century practice that people who do not want to join the army under conscription can plead conscience. They can say, my religion, I'm a pacifist. According to my religion, it is never just to initiate violence. Uh, you must be as Jesus was, uh, as Jesus said to his disciple, who struck a Roman god's ear off with a with a sword? No, uh, th this is not the right way. It is better for them to to put me up on the cross, um, than 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 to try and there's bring a, people to God through violence. There's an excellent Mel Gibson movie about this called Hacksaw Ridge, uh, which is about a conscientious objector who won a medal of honor. So you should check that out if you're interested in the topic. Yeah, because because he became a soldier. He, he was a he was a field surgeon. 
so that's the kind of thing you can do, or you can say, I don't want to be part of any, part of any of this at all. But there's but the law treated people differently. It treated conscientious objectors differently to how it treated uh, people who said, I don't want to join this because it's inconvenient, or I don't want to join the war because I think I'm better than you guys, send the plebs, or I don't want to join the war because I just hate the government. Uh, you know, pe- the, 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 the law demanded that people give their reasons and then it judged people dis- differently according to their different reasons. And again, there was an issue of some people lying, but it was also possible to show sometimes when people were lying. And generally what it did is it just forced society to think about the question of conscription, I think, in a much more healthy way. To bring out the real tension that the pacifist uh, religious people bring to us. And that's part of what I think this simple recommendation would do to the case of abortion in America and everywhere else, including South Africa, is it would bring up the real issue. The real disagreement surely is about whether it's a I just don't see a genuine argument that a woman's uh, uh, privacy over her body is sufficiently strong that if she's chosen to have casual and unprotected sex, that she can also choose to kill a human being uh, because the consequences are inconvenient. That's just is that's the almost argument that Roe versus Wade makes. I mean, it is the argument that it makes for the first trimester, and then it just uh, illogically walks it back on the third trimester. Yeah, but it, which is one very good indication that it's that it's like it's not a real argument. The privacy argument is not a real argument. Uh, and people were just happy to go along with it for the same reason they were happy to go along with it in the Griswold case, for the same reason they were happy to go along with it in the Loving case, all presided over by the same Supreme Court and and mostly by the same, a lot of those opinions written by the same justice, uh, uh, a black man. And, uh, and people liked it because they liked the consequences, but they weren't thinking very clearly about the reasons. And I think we should take a step back and emphasize reasons. And respect women. I think it's I think it's misogynistic to say that a, you shouldn't expect women to give their reasons for why they want an abortion. That would be the obvious pushback from uh, ultra lefties. They'd say, "Ah, oh, this is typical like uh, patriarchy. The men come up with the rules, and then they want women to give their reasons. But like being a mother is such a mystical, esoteric thing." Uh, you, you you can't expect these poor darlings to to use words to justify their reasoning. No, no, no. Yes. <laughs> Women are full citizens, and 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 they must be expected to give their reasons if they want to have an abortion. And 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 to to people who are pro-life, it will be very unsatisfying to 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 have women say, "Well, look, I think I've got the right to do this because I don't consider that a person." But because it's so hard to because it is a matter of living dispute within all major religions and within among secularists. I think that it would, you know, abortions are happening anyway. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it make it clear? I think it would be a relief to, to many people. Like at least they're saying exactly, at least we can all agree exactly where we disagree. You think it's not a person. I think it's a person. Yeah, we should all um, agree that you can't go killing persons just for the sake of convenience. And I think that's the tension. People freak out about yeah. abortion. Uh, pro-lifers because freak they, out because they, they, they like... Talk, they, they talk around that, that thing rather than talking to it. I think that's so much of it. And this simple proposal would just, would just force people yeah. to talk about whether you think it's a person or not and start your decision there. 
unless it's rape or incest or something like that. If it's a regular case, start your decision-making process from whether you think it's a person or not. And that is just, I just think that's the right place to start the decision-making process from an individual point of view, from a from a spiritual point of view, from most importantly from a societal point of view. I think it would, I think it would cool the tension. And I think it would make it easier for people to have compassionate and conscientious debates with one another, both theological and philosophical, to try and co convince each other, you know, the heartbeat rule should be the rule, or the breath rule should be the rule, or conception should be the rule. People can have that debate with more precision and more focus if they, if we all acknowledge together that that is the real uh, point of dispute. Um, right. Anyway, so that's my and, simple proposal. And, yeah, so 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 I, th I think it's a pretty reasonable proposal. My, mine would be, I think one of the big problems with Roe v. Wade was that it uh, it federalized the thing. It 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 or, or, or rather it took it up to the central. It took it up to the central government. So in the U.S., what used to happen was different states would add different laws. Um, uh, Texas and Alabama might be super anti-abortion and maybe ban it. And New York would be pro-abortion, would allow it. And I think that this is a, a practical way um, of of trying to resolve some of these tensions, because they allow different localities with different uh, views on the subject. Um, and as as Gabriel's just at length described, it is in a lot of ways not entirely reconcilable uh, in any completely satisfactory way. Um, so I think that on a practical level, what you should do is. Uh, leave it up to the the local community or whatever to to basically decide. But of course, what what Roe v. Wade did was it said, no, no, there's one rule for the whole country, which is broadly this, and then you can tweak here and there what goes on in the in the second and third trimester. But uh, here's the rule for everyone, and that's that's not been good for American politics. It's uh, it's yeah. made it a lot uh, more vicious um, because. Yeah. Half half the electorate thinks that uh, you know the right of women to live unshackled from the kitchen is uh, dependent on Roe v. Wade, and the other half believes that um, it's the continued continued legalization of the murder of children. So this is not a good place for a debate to be. So I think it's very important to reconcile both of these two points that we're making, and 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 here's one way to do it. I don't think that any state should be allowed to permit abortions outside of incest and rape uh, and, and maybe a sort of accidental conception uh, if the person thinks, if the mother thinks that the fetus is a person. And I, so I think that should be federalized. I th that's like a, an anti-abortion federal clause that, that should be there because I don't think any state has the right to say you can think of someone something as being a person and still kill it just for the sake of convenience. And by yeah, the I way, think, I think that's point. this this thing that I'm going to about what what is the woman's belief? What is the what is the mother's belief? If you think this is an esoteric kind of spiritual thing only and that it's not actually a legal principle, let's talk for a moment about attempted murder. It is the law in the United States and in South Africa that if you have very good reason to believe that uh, a robot is a person and you try very hard to kill it, you are accountable to the law for attempted murder. So there's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tricky clause because 
if you uh, are completely crazy and you think a watermelon is a person and you throw peas at it thinking that's going to kill the watermelon, then you can't be up for <laughs> attempted murder. Uh, and there was a case not so different to that. But if you, uh, but there have been real cases where people have shot at, at, at animals in the distance and they've been proven to th have thought that they were persons because there were witnesses. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to kill that, that, that bastard over there. Uh, and it's not a person, so you can't be up for murder because it's only murder if you've killed a person. But you can be up for attempted murder if you, if your mental state was uh, sane, legally sane, and you took serious proactive steps that any reasonable person would think would lead to the death of that person. And, and the only thing that you got wrong is that the thing you were shooting at wasn't a person. So it really does matter. Like the law against murder is very serious and no state should allow any woman, in my opinion, to kill a person just for the sake of convenience. If she believes it's a person, that matters in a very simple legal way. Um, so I think there should be a federal law for that. But in terms of, of, of the, the state principle that you're saying, I totally think some states might want to say from a state's point of view, we, we recognize that across America and across the world, there is disagreement about whether a fetus is a person or not, or whether it's a soul or not. But within our state, we're going to lobby and we're going to vote. And if we can get a majority or a supermajority to deem that the moment of conception is when personhood starts or the moment of the heartbeat or the moment of hedonic states or the moment of the first breath, if, this, if the people of the state in a in a consensual democratic way want to take that uh, belief question away off of the mother's shoulders and say the state is going to draw the line of where personhood starts uh, and so, then some states will draw the line at conception and some states will draw the line at nine months new york's already done that basically yeah. so uh if if the court i think the supreme court of uh, the United States obligation is 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 just to say, yeah, most of the work should be done by the states, but with this one limitation, no state can allow uh, for mothers to be killing uh, fetuses that they think are persons, because um, that's just really bad for the mom. It's it's so it's so poisonous to think that your convenience is is more important than a person. It's it's a very yeah. toxic argument. And I think it's a very mi minority argument. I think most people who are for abortion, they just don't think it's a person until uh, the second trimester or the third trimester. I don't, you know, I think that's really where uh, that uh, the the, the pro-life, the pro-abortion argument comes from. And I think there's a, a, a minority kind of feminist special interest group that wants to say a woman's body is so precious that her convenience trumps the the rest and and that privacy argument's just been taken too far and it is and and feminists you know there's this just one last thing about that just so you don't think that you know i'm i'm for equality before the law uh very much i'm for equal opportunity for women very very much i have grown up in a household of very strong women and i know uh nicholas has too um the the the, the issue just there with the, fe the feminist special interest group in the united states is the way that they define equality is is not actually about equality. 
it's uh, it's really about something else. And and don't take it from me. Take it from the opinion polls, which have found that in America, like ninety percent of people say they're for equality of opportunity and equality before the law for men and women, but ninety percent also say they refuse to define themselves as feminists because they don't think feminism means that. Because the way that academic feminists use the term, it means something else. And the same is true in the United Kingdom. Similar polling has shown the same thing. And it's and 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 one of the things, and and one of the exact touch points is that. The, there's a sort of feminist elite academic crowd that wants to say that a woman is so sacred that you can't expect her to give reasons and her body is a temple of such incommensurable worth that you can't expect, uh, 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 you know, that its convenience is more important than a person. And that's just not a good argument. And, and anyway, so I hope, my hope is that uh, with the Supreme Court going the way that it seems to be going, that this kind of, I think this argument, which I think is compassionate and intelligent and and reason ground, grounded in reason, grounded in the thought that we have to reason things out with one another and we have to respect conscientious differences. I think I hope that, that, that we can get some of that. It would be as day is tonight compared to with what American politics is right now and with what the abortion debate has been for the last 40 years. But, Glad you know, you, we we we. Sometimes we make mistakes in, in, in time to, to, to learn from them. And that's what I'm hoping for. Okay, so we've dwelled on this issue at great length, Nicholas. And uh, yes. you've been very sweet uh, oh, on your rainy side. There's, there's been so much rain in the background. I haven't wanted to talk too much. Um, I, I thought it was quite funny that, uh, as, you, as you sort of mentioned, uh, uh, feminist, uh, feminist academics sort of ominous thunder clap in the background <laughs> um and i look forward to the, to, to the to 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 the angry to at least probably one angry email uh one will get for talking about this topic um, yeah two men two men talking about abortion i know it's not a good look but you know yeah. I, I, much <laughs> no, but i really do think it's more important that's a that, that is a stupid way to think about who can talk. Yeah. I mean, this whole, you know, who can yeah, talk about it. we've got to be reasonable. Thing. We've got to be mm. reasonable. And we're all adults, hey? This is the Republican thing. We're all adults in this thing together. We have to talk it out. Anyway, so talking about talking it out, uh, Donald Trump is sick. Uh, his yeah, wife is about, maybe uh, sick. Let's go over this in about 15 minutes. Uh, so what do we think? Well, how, so, how are Americans talking about this? How are they talking about his sickness? And how do you think it's going to so change the way that they I, talk about who to vote for? Uh, so I, I think that there are different conversations going on. There's a conversation of, ha, huh, he's sick. And that's where the conversation ends. There's a conversation saying, of course this happened. He's an irresponsible moron. And uh, it's it's, you know, I'm surprised it didn't happen sooner. And then there's another, which is, Ah, oh, the poor hero of the Republic. He got sick in such bad luck, but he's fighting against it, and uh, he's going to beat it because he's a giant tower of masculine virility. So, <laughs> I don't. Are I they don't talking to any, each other, or are they? Are, no, are any of them touching sides? No, mostly what they do is uh, is they is is the two the two polarized ones will try and find the nuttiest version of the other one. And then display it to their own followers to uh, to spit on and, and decry. Um, but by and large, I think there's only been one bit of polling that's come out about this so far, and it says something like 65% of Americans think that Trump's recklessness resulted, or at least contributed, to his um, infection. Now, whether that's true or not, 
it, we don't really know, and I'm sure people will work it out and always be a little bit of an open question. But I think that that's important politically because what it means is is this. There has been a narrative that has been crafted by the Biden campaign. Biden is not running against Trump so much this election as against COVID, right? He does yeah. an enormous amount of COVID focus. He's always wearing a mask. He's always social distancing. He doesn't do big events. His campaign didn't do door-to-door -door campaigning until like, I think, a week or two ago. So uh, for Biden, this is, I think, probably, although not for sure, going to be a bit of a big win because I think what will happen is Biden will now say, not maybe in so many words, but it will imply, look, this, the story I told you about a reckless and competent president who didn't know how to deal with this virus is completely true, and now he's a victim of his own foolishness. And uh, that's why you have to elect me, because I take this thing seriously, and I will take the country seriously, because uh, I'll, you know, I'm calm, I have the right temperament, that kind of thing. That's, I think, Biden's pitch, and I think Trump getting sick is probably going to contribute to that. The, the alternative version is that people will say, we'll see people being, because of course, whenever something like this happens, there are lots of ghouls out there on social media, many of them uh, occupying the highest perches of academia and journalism, uh, who are covering themselves in, in oil and rolling about in the dirt, squealing with delight, because they uh, are basically openly, openly saying, I can't believe this is happening, this is so good, I hope he dies. Yeah. And so, if there's too much of that, I can see people sort of rallying around their leader and saying, look, whatever you think about Trump, this is this is just not the way to treat the leader of the country. It's disgusting. I don't like you. Um, we, we're going to vote for him and support him because, you know, he's like an avatar of the nation. He's also sick like the nation. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I think Trump is too polarizing a figure. And even though while he's been sick, he's been much less of a polarizing figure. Uh, I think also the Biden campaign is doing is being quite clever in sidestepping that. So they've suspended negative ads against Trump while he's in hospital um, because they don't want, you know, Trump deathly ill with COVID. And then the minute after that, uh, a horrible attack ad about how Trump is a monster. Um, and also Biden said that he said this is a, uh, a bipartisan American moment where we need to come together and wish for the health of our president. So I think he, whether that's sincere or not, uh, he's definitely um, positioning himself, himself in a responsible way to, I think, take advantage of the whole thing. Uh, that's my feeling. And I think I'm going to go on record now and say that I think Joe Biden will win the election. I think that the one possibility that could change this is if Trump uh, has registered a lot of people through his on-the-ground activities and a lot of um, new voters come out in, in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And swing things for him. I think he'll probably win Florida, so he's he's kind of halfway there. But I don't think that that's going to happen in sufficient numbers to turn the election. So uh, we shall have a crow-eating contest afterwards <laughs> if I am wrong. But that's yeah. my prediction. Yeah. No, I'm I'm in agreement. I have I have uh, throughout this year, uh, Trump has been far behind in the polls. Uh, but there's been a lot of talk about the shy Trump supporter who. Is reluctant well, to even say privately think, that they like Trump, and for party for that did, reason, uh, can I just interject? Uh, 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 there was someone who said if the polls are as wrong as they were last time, Biden would still probably win very, very narrowly. Yeah. So, but my feeling was uh, there's been a lot of evolution uh, between then and now, and so I'm sticking to 
I was 50-50. If you gave me odds, I'd bet, bet on either candidate. But if it was, if you weren't, you know, if it was, if we were just betting a bottle of whiskey, I buy you or you buy me, uh, then I wouldn't bet. Uh, but I think this is the Oct- October surprise. Um, it's not really such a surprise. I mean, COVID is 2020's greatest story, and Trump is the last five years' greatest story. And those two stories, uh, like uh, star-crossed lovers, were bound the, to meet. Yeah, the cross the crossover we knew was always going to happen. So it's not a surprise in a way that it happened, but it's a surprise that it happened now, so close to the election in October. And uh, I, yeah, I now think that Biden is going to win. So I'm not going to bet against you. I think we're going to bet against uh, people, many who want Trump to win. And, I, you know, I, I, I'd say it's 60-40 in Biden's favor. I think Trump still stands a real chance. But, uh, uh, yeah, I think that uh, uh, I, th- I think that this is going to tip uh, the, the case that sobriety and caution are the better part of valor uh, against uh, Trump's sort of case of being – uh, abrasive, but that being necessary to to create the disruption necessary for progress. Uh, I think I think I think this is going to pip it for Biden. But I want to well, point thanks. to a deeper a deeper malaise, uh, which is to say I don't think like I don't think America is going to win. I think whichever party Probably wins, not, no. I think America is going to lose. And I just read this piece this morning. I, I talked about it with Nicholas on our Daily Friends show today. And uh, I'm just going to give a quick shout out for the Daily Friend Show. We we do it every day. It's uh, it's on the same platforms that you Except find Friday. two crickets. Uh, yeah, uh, which is when we're supposed to do two crickets. Um, and it's just half an hour, and and it's it's uh, three people, not two. Uh, it's shorter. It's it's uh, less contemplative, but you get more stories in there. And I think we did a very good episode today about the IMF, uh, SAA bailout story, about uh, the land. Uh, Ramaphosa's promise to private, not actually privatize uh, seven thousand hectares, and about Trump's illness. So, so give that a listen. Uh, but I, except I drew for the end, which was ruined by rain. <laughs> but yes, just the last minute. But so I mentioned this poll, and I'm going to mention it again here, uh, which was done by uh, the uh, YouGov and the Voter Study Group, and the Voter Study of six thousand respondents. So it's pretty big, um, and uh, it's a slightly left-leaning uh, pollster. And they've been asking people since 2017, how much do you feel it is justified for your party to use violence in advancing political goals? Options are never justified, a little justified, a moderate amount is justified, a lot is justified, or a great deal justified. It's a very serious question. Is it okay to use violence to advance your political party? And in 2017, they got 8% of Republicans saying a little or more and 8% of Democrats saying a little or more. In other words, to put it the other way around, 92% said violence is never justified to advance your political goals. By 2018, the Democrats had surged ahead. That almost doubled to 13%. And it's not hard to understand why. You had Madonna saying she fantasizes about blowing up the White House or killing the president. And you had all kinds of famous people saying lots of stuff like that. Republicans have creeped up a little bit too. By 2019, the Democrats are up to 16% saying some violence is justified and 15% of Republicans. So both parties climbed. 2020, at the, at, uh, uh, the start of June, 30% uh, 
of Democrats and 30% of Republicans said violence is justified. And uh, by September, 33% of Democrats and 36% of Republicans. And I think oh. if you put that in the context of both of both campaigns arguing that the vote's rigged, of both campaigns... And that, and that the other side is trying to pull off a coup. That the other side is trying to pull off a coup. This is, this is a cold civil war. Um, it's cold in the sense that there are no formal armies, but there are militias on both they sides. They fight each other sometimes. And they kill each uh, other sometimes. Seen, yeah. And I think that uh, my worry, I'm very worried that uh, whoever wins the election, uh, you know, I remember when I was a kid, when, when George Bush won after the Supreme Court ruling uh, sort of against a recount and basically going with the Florida Supreme Court's judgment that George Bush got it uh, on slightly dubious terms, uh, there was huge complaint. There was the largest uh, parade of protest to a new president arriving at the White House in the history of the States. And it was very sad, but it was very peaceful protest. People were very angry, but it was deliberately and conspicuously very peaceful. Mm. And ever since then, Bush the second time, Obama not so much the first time, but definitely the second time, uh, and Trump the first time. All of them had large-scale protests, but they were peaceful indeed. Even if the yes. rhetoric started to get more violent, they were peaceful indeed. And yeah. now you can see a new thing has happened. Even just after Trump, even as angry as people were, 92% of both parties' supporters believe that violence is never justified to advance your political agenda. And now a third of both parties thinks that violence is justified. And I just think that it's it's just uh, you know my my standing bet with with my old writing mentor Rian Milan is is do you think there's going to be serious blood on the streets after the election? And he was offering uh, twenty to one odds, and I said on twenty to one odds I'll take that bet. You know I'll bet a hundred rand, uh, <laughs> and if there's blood on the streets after the election, I'll be very sad. But at least I'll have twenty thousand rand. Or no, what is it? Two thousand. <laughs> um, but I think yeah. those odds have come have come down now. It's three to one. When I see th when I see three out of when I see three out of every ten people, or one out of every three people on both sides, think violence is justified. I think uh, I actually think it's even even Stevens. I think it's just a very serious well, thing. I, I think it's worth saying expect. that it's not. Uh, it's not. It's not. You know, thirty uh, percent of the population or whatever, because it doesn't include. Um, uh, it, it doesn't include independents who are actually the largest group. That's so it's just sort of partisans. Correct. Yes. So that's 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 a sign, uh, at least, of why it's not quite as bad as it might first appear. Even though it, I agree, it is very very bad. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of this is due to extremely overheated rhetoric on the sides. And it, it's like, and and someone pointed this out. I can't remember who, but someone said, you know, there are people who are basically have been saying that Trump is a fascist dictator but now are content to wish him well in his recovery from COVID. Now, I think that's a good thing that they're wishing him well. But I think what it demonstrates is that there are people out there who use rhetoric like this, use this insane, overheated rhetoric, who don't actually mean it. Yeah, and then I would want it. Hitler to die of COVID. Yes. It, yeah, if you really think someone's... This is the play-play point we keep saying. The, this, this thing of, like, using language... 
and ideas and concepts in the same way that children make mud cakes. They don't actually yeah. want to eat the mud cake, but they blow on it. It's hot. It's a very natural thing. You don't have to taught to be taught how to do play play, but uh, you do have to be taught how to flip and stop it when it's dangerous. And, and calling people fascists is flipping dangerous. We need to stop. We need to stop. Uh, 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 and, and this this goes beyond the American story as well, because our politics, especially our online politics, especially our sort of um, our bubble, I think is also quite overheated, you know. It, people say if Joe Biden wins, it's the beginning of Venezuelan socialism in America. Yeah, and no, if no, they, they say if Trump wins, if, if Trump wins again, America's democracy is over. No, this is wrong. It's not going to be the end of American democracy unless everyone believes it is, in which case it will be the end of American democracy. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so, if so, you have any American friends, my recommendation yeah. is. Instead of asking them who they're going to vote for or what do they hate about the other candidates, just ask them, like, what do you love about America and, and what are you doing outside of party politics to preserve that, to conserve that and to grow that? You know, exactly. I, I think this is the time to try and spread compassion. This really is the time to try and spread intelligent, reason-based compassion. This is, this is not a time... The, the, all of the incentives are going the other way to 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 be the loudest flipping missile in the arsenal, shooting the I mean, highest think, with the lowest. I think most of our listeners can agree that even if they perhaps disagree on American politics to some degree with us, they do agree. You know, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably don't like the EFF, and yeah. we can see in this country what the EFF's rhetoric does. And yeah. just as we don't accept it here, we shouldn't accept it there. We shouldn't accept it broadly it's it's yeah. terrible for democracy um keep the war metaphors to a minimum <laughs> yeah it's 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 like swearing you know somehow yes. when people write newspaper articles other than richard poplack like almost everyone has figured out how to write something readable without no, wait, swearing what's, what's the other is, is there's another one who's not richard poplack though there's Oh, no, sorry, never mind, go on. Okay, him and that one other guy feel like they need to throw in some F-bombs to, to keep the reader's attention. But the yeah. rest of us know you have to use facts, you have to you can use bon mots, you can use witticisms, you can use a bit of an entertaining intro or outro. There are various ways of, of using style to reinforce your point, but swearing is just like a lazy place to go to. And, and war metaphors... Uh, and calling people fascists, it's also just a very, it's lazy, you know, yeah. try harder. It'll be more interesting. You'll, you'll get a better caliber of, of likes on your Twitter following or, or your, or your blog. But I will, I will also say in, to conclude that the politicians themselves, um, in the U S and also here, uh, must stop being nice to the extremists as well. So, yeah. you know, you ask, you ask Donald Trump to, to denounce right-wing militias. He's denounced white supremacy, but right-wing militias, he's been a little bit more vague on. Uh, you know, like in his answer on the debate, they said, will you denounce white supremacists and the uh, right-wing militias? And he said, sure, 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 but someone's got to do something about Antifa and the left. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like, okay. Yeah. No, there's a better way to answer that question. Yeah, yeah don't, don't play cover for militias. And the same with, with Biden when uh, he was asked about whether to denounce Antifa. And he said, Antifa is just an idea. It's not an organization. Okay. It's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. Stop, yeah, stop playing footsie and just say, 
guys, this is not okay. You're not allowed to go yeah. around beating people up. Um, you're this not allowed to talk shops. Yeah, and go, the law will follow its course. You will be arrested. Exactly. Go home and come out on voting day if you're upset, or maybe go into the streets and protest peacefully. Don't burn a Starbucks down. Don't beat up Antifa in the streets. Don't, you know, this is the police's job. But anyway, this is, this is I think, expanding the scope of things. Um, yeah, but we're not expecting thoughts? too much. Dude, I just want to say, <laughs> no. like, I think people's horizon of expectations has been so narrowed by the siloed sinking that, that, that when Nicholas and Gabriel say things like, we want politicians to properly condemn fascists, to never call people fascists who aren't fascists, to properly uh, speak out against wanton and arbitrary abuses of violence, that uh, we sound like quixotic sort of schoolboys wishing for Christmas in July. This is not this this is not, not higher grade people. mathematics. This is very basic. This is like yes. seven year olds can do it. The president and and the lead candidate for the opposing party can do it too. And it would and it's and it's not play play. It's like the, the play play ideas that they're abusing have very real world consequences. Uh, and uh, and and we can feel them here. And I'm feeling very nervous about what the South African consequences are going to be. Of, uh, yeah, of if, an America if, that becomes embroiled in its own internal strife. Yeah. Of, of which there will certainly be a racial fa uh, faction as well. I don't know if you've seen, but there's, I mean, for forever in America, there's been black nationalist separatists who wanted a, a black only state in America. Um, that's been a thing for a very long time. Um, but they're yeah. popping their heads out again now because they're trying to seize on the Black Lives Matter protest momentum to sort of recruit for their cause. Uh, and any big trouble in America is going to include them. And they will inspire the racial nationalists here in a very ugly way. Yeah. And it's going to be fine for tech giants in California and uh, legal eagles in Chicago and uh, entertainment industry and sort of uh, accounting whiz kids in New York and for big time farmers in the Sunshine States and, uh, and Disneyland is going to be just fine. Uh, but yeah, ordinary America is going to suffer a little bit and it's going to be a case if they, if they blow up their race nationalist story, particularly their black race nationalist story now in America, it's going to inflame our guys very badly. And if you have white race nationalists coming out with guns to shoot people down because Joe Biden wins, oh, that's also going to oh, inflame, yeah. that's also not gonna inflame be so tensions good. here. Yeah. In a very, very ugly way. There will be blood on our streets. If there's blood on America's streets, this bet, you can give me any odds. If there's blood on their streets, there will be blood on our streets in 2021 in a serious way. Compound it with the new, the 2.1 million newly unemployed, compound it with a reform strategy that, uh, you, you know, thinks you can arrest five people and, and suddenly uh, everything's going to be okay. <laughs> yes. I think we, I, I'm worried for South Africa. I think we're looking at a very grim 2021. Uh, and, 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 uh, but I think we'd be somewhat uh, shielded against the worst if the Americans would just grow up for 30 days, just for 30 days, just flipping <laughs> at your age. Well, look. Like look, you're a 200 year old democracy and you are actual grown men and women. <laughs> Use yeah. your brains. We, we should just change every podcast to reading a list of world leaders and then just saying grow up afterwards because I think that's where we're going at the moment. Um, 
But okay. Uh, so what are you know, your recommendations, other, Nick? Give us, other, give us, give us a that, The, the okay. other alternative. The other alternative is that the election happens. Uh, one of them wins in a landslide, and everyone realizes that they've gotten a bit silly, and then they want to go back to their lives because COVID is finally over, and everyone calms down. That's also a possibility. That's the one I'm hoping for, but <laughs> we can talk about oh, what I was on that one. <laughs> anyway, uh, recommendations, recommendations. Well, I'm not entirely sure what I what I'll, I'll tell you. What book I've just bought and should be arriving in the next few days. Uh, is uh, American national, former national security advisor and General H.R. McMaster wrote a book called Battlefields, which is about the U.S.'s yes. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, I was just uh, reading also, a review of that. Yes, and their their um, their fight with China, and I am very interested to read it. Um, he, I heard a podcast with him talking about it. I thought it sounded very interesting, so I am looking forward to it. Um, what is your recommendation? So, I for my birthday, my mom gave me Paradise Lost by John Milton, which I'm ah, looking forward good. to reading over Christmas. A uh, nice 100-page poem about, I don't know, Paradise Lost just feels like the perfect 2020. Um, <laughs> my mom's got a funny way of... Anyway, uh, but uh, for the Liberal Club, uh, which uh, the Institute is sort of the host of, uh, tomorrow nicholas let us know that we're going to be having a book review session and uh in his email he asked us to think about the book the books that have changed our lives and i've got to say if i look in my adult life uh post university the 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 most life-changing book for me is definitely solzhenitsyn's gulag archipelago um yeah that's a good one and uh, yeah i think if if you haven't read it People talk it up a lot who have. I think it's there's 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 like a real come to Jesus kind of aspect uh, to his analysis of the Soviet Union, to his personal experience fighting Nazis, fighting fighting communists who were who were once on his side, and fighting for and fighting for. I mean the the basic idea that he discovers in the after being tortured for years and and abused is that even his wardens even those nasty nasty wardens uh who killed people by the hundreds in front of his very eyes even they had some good to them and even mm. the best people have some 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 wickedness to them uh and so his line that the the line between good and evil it doesn't it doesn't divide fascist from communist it doesn't divide democrat from authoritarian it doesn't divide uh, one nationality from another, one race from another, one gender from another. It uh, it runs through every single human heart. I think that uh, it's a very simple idea. It's an ancient idea, and yeah. it's not the only idea he has in there. But but what? But sort of it, that book is such is the most intense package for that idea that I've come across. And I think that yeah, if you, if you do get through it, I think that n it never leaves you in a way. And uh, so that's my recommendation. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Um, and we'll see you soon on the next episode of Two Crickets in the Laundry. Have a great week, everyone. Grr.